Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, good morning. Welcome to Island Conversations. We're here on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii every Sunday on KWXX and on B97, B93. And then the interviews rebroadcast the following Friday on KPUA 670 AM in Hilo. And you may always hear past Island Conversations on online or download them as podcasts. Go to kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. Up at the top, there's a podcast tab. Today we are airing the first of two conversations about the Japanese on the Big Island of Hawaii and actually in the state. Our first conversation this morning is with Arnold Hiura. He represents the Hawaii Japanese Center in Hilo, and we'll talk more about that institution as well. I recorded the interview with Arnold just about a year ago, and that was at the end of 2018, which was a year to mark 150 years since the first Japanese arrived in the state of Hawaii. Arnold will explain all about that. Next week, we'll be talking with Walter Kunitake. He's a Kona coffee farmer, and he will talk a little bit about why some of the Japanese people moved from the plantations to the west side of Hawaii Island, and he'll talk about plans for a new Japanese cultural center in Kona. Let's get to our conversation with Arnold Hiura. Good morning. Aloha, Arnold. Good morning. Arnold, we are sitting in the Hawaii Japanese Center. It's at 751 Kanoe Lehua Avenue. Tell us what this place in Hilo is all about. Well, I think as you had commented, it may be one of the better kept secrets here in Hawaii. We are a community center and we host a number of activities from meetings to speakers to films to exhibitions. And we've also come to serve as a kind of a repository. Um, We're not a professionally equipped museum or archives, but we have a fairly extensive collection of artifacts leading back to immigration and through the plantation era, and a noteworthy library, actually, that is the result of the collection of Mr. Kiyoshi Okubo. Mr. Okubo was a newspaper publisher, published the Hilo Times, and he was also a radio personality and quite the collector, and so his books formed the core of our library. Well, you took me back into that library, and I'm using the word huge. It has so many books and publications in it. Yes, it is rather impressive, if I can say so myself. We receive researchers from both the U.S. and Japan who come here especially to use the library. A lot of -of one-of-a-kind books going back to the Meiji era, which would be around the time of the Ganenmono, 1868 as well as works written in Japanese in Hawaii, which makes them all the more unusual. Well, I noticed also you have the Hilo Times. There was also a Japanese-language newspaper published on the Kona side of the island. Yes, one of the earliest Japanese-language newspapers published on the Big Island, or for the state of Hawaii, for that matter, was called the Kona Hankyu, or the Kona Echo. We have a collection of originals that we are in the process of digitizing. So roughly 1890s would be the publication dates. Just looking at what a challenge newspapers have today in getting their newspapers published and distributed, I can't even imagine what it was like back then. (laughs) 
The Conan paper has no real advertising that I can tell. So obviously, I think for it to have survived at all was more a labor of love than it was for profit. The Japanese were obviously, I think, what it points out is that they're highly literate people who valued news and information and writing, recording what was going on. So I think it's very symbolic in that respect. Well, I was also intrigued in the museum. There is a phrase book that was published at least 100 years ago that has phrases in English, Japanese, and in Hawaiian. Yes, that particular book, the original is here, and what the Hawaii Japanese Center did some years ago was to reproduce it because it is such a unique and fascinating piece of history because it illustrates that when the immigrants from Japan came, it was not just learning English, but it was adjusting to Hawaii and the fact that Hawaiian was still spoken. A lot of the early Issei, depending on where they lived, were fluent in Hawaiian. One example that we were just talking about in the gallery was a family that settled in Waipio Valley. And Waipio Valley being, you know, a taro growing area was predominantly Hawaiian. So that family, the early family members, all spoke Hawaiian. So we really want to talk about the first Japanese who came to Hawaii really to work in the sugar plantations or do whatever else. I saw that there were some, I will call them errant ships, who either shipwrecked or wandered off course who ended up here. But I really want to talk about the first arrival of the Japanese immigrants around 1868. What brought them to Hawaii? Where did they come from? Where were they going to? The first group was kind of an unusual group. The Ganen Mono were the first year people of the transition between the Tokugawa shogunate and the Meiji emperor. And as such, it was a rather unusual situation in the sense that the Tokugawa shogun had approved the arrangement, but the Meiji emperor had not. So there was a transition from shogunate to emperorship. It sounds like a complete transition in government in Japan. So tell us about that first. Well, yeah, I mean, complete transition is accurate. It had tremendous impact on the nation's policies, taxes, land use, and on and on. Japan went from being a isolated, shuttered nation to a worldly one. At least that was the goal. So as this group of Ganen Mono were put together, roughly 150 of them recruited mainly in the Yokohama area. And because of that, rather hurriedly, organized departure. These were not experienced farm people. They were town people in many cases, which I guess led to some impractical situations once they landed here. They weren't used to that kind of work. The work was harder than anticipated. Benefits were less than what was promised. It was a very difficult situation. They came on three-year contracts. At the end of three years, they were free to either go back to Japan, which roughly a third of them went back to Japan. Roughly a third of them proceeded on to California, and roughly a third of them stayed. Because they were on one ship only, and immigration had been stopped by the emperor, they married, they were mostly men who married Hawaiian women and became part of the general society here, which is very important, I think, because for those who stayed, married, and settled in Hawaii, they were thought upon favorably enough that King Kalakaua went back to Japan to negotiate additional immigration, which restarts once again in earnest in 1885. 
who had the idea to recruit Japanese laborers in the first place? Why was it needed and why Japan? Well, I'm not sure of all of the reasons, but the need for labor on Hawaii sugar plantations started with actually the importation of Chinese. After the Chinese came the Japanese. I believe because of Kalakaua's favorable impression of Japan, a greater effort was focused on recruitment in Japan. So when it restarts in 1885, then you find the heavy immigration coming from southwestern Japan, Hiroshima, Yamaguchi, those prefectures have the highest numbers, Niigata, Lesser. Anyway, these were people who, for various reasons, were looking for a means to make money, to improve their situation, because they had been put in a very difficult position. There's a tradition in Japan that's called dekasegi, which means to go out, make money, come back, help the family. So I think for a lot of these people, it was a three-year commitment. It was out to make money, help the family, come back to Japan. But circumstances changed and people ended up staying in Hawaii or moving on to California. Any kind of situation like that, there's always a push-pull. There are factors in the homeland that are pushing people to go out. And there are people who are, in, in the case of Hawaii, active recruiters are going, please come, come to paradise, you know. <laughs> we'll take care of you, beautiful Hawaii. You'll find your fortune here. <laughs> so the push-pull actually ended up bringing estimated between 180,000 to 200,000 between 1885 to 1924. You noted that on the very first ship of roughly 150 people, most were men. What would have brought women? Were they married to the men or were they not? Yeah, I believe the women that did come, maybe about a half a dozen or so, were already married. They came as couples. I have heard about picture brides. To what extent did the single men here in Hawaii use that picture bride system to find wives or do you think most of them did in fact marry women who are already here, Hawaiian women? The Ganinmono group is fairly isolated in that respect because they come in 1868 and there is no more immigration until 1885. There's no mechanism or means of introducing yourself or bringing people over. So the ones that stayed married Hawaiian women. But when the mass immigration restarts in 1885, then you have ship after ship after ship that's coming. And again, many of them are younger men, able-bodied men out to work in the plantation, make money and go home. They come here and for different reasons, they don't go home and they want to get married. So that's where it starts. It's called picture bride, but it's not like a catalog kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I, I think people get the wrong impression. It was an arranged marriage and arranged marriages were fairly traditional in Japan and elsewhere, not just Japan. So these are people who know each other's families, who have a go-between, an intermediary, a matchmaker, people who, I guess, would be good couples. I guess they, they made their best match. And of course, in many cases, pictures were exchanged. That's the origin or the background behind the picture brides. As we were walking around, I saw a reproduction of a note from one of the emperors to the people who were leaving Japan, and it basically said, go for three years, be good, make money, and make sure you come back. So how did the Japanese government feel about those folks who chose not to come back? Were they essentially disowned by Japan? Tell me what you know about that. That particular note that you saw was actually written by the governor of Hiroshima to departing immigrants as they left for work in Hawaii. 
I'm not sure exactly how they were treated. I know that they kept their citizenship, the first generation. Second generation, of course, were American citizens. In some cases, they were dual citizens, registered with both Japan and U.S. up until World War II. I guess at that point, it was very clear that for most Nisei, they would wanted to repudiate their Japanese nation um, and be 100% American because that's what they were. And the Nisei are the first generation that's actually born here? Yeah, the first generation that's born here. The immigrants count as one, so their children are counted as two. As a result, I think many families from Japan who trace their ancestry back to Japan are fourth or fifth generation now. But except for the Ganinmono, they got to jump on everybody by some 15 or so years. They are into their sixth or even seventh generation. Because this year was a Ganinmono celebration year, we heard that several new babies were born this year, which meant those families were seven generations deep. Well, when the Japanese first came here, the Hawaiian Kingdom was the government. It was not part of the United States at that point. So did those Japanese who came here, did they become citizens of the Hawaiian Kingdom? What do you know about that? No, they were not citizens of the Hawaiian Kingdom, as far as I know. They were, like in the case of the Ganimono, many of them married into Hawaiian families, and so they lived their lives as local citizens. But I don't think they were legally Hawaiian citizens. Interesting. And then I suppose after the overthrow in 1893, then everybody in this territory, in the territory of Hawaii, would have been considered an American citizen. What was life like for the workers who came over from Japan, mostly to work on sugar plantations? And by the way, I heard that this was not the first island to which they came. So let's start with that. Where did they go when they first came to the state? And then when did they get to the big island? Immigrants landed in Honolulu Harbor, the main immigration station there. They were processed, given health checks, etc., and then assigned to different plantations. So they'd have to take a neighbor island trip to get to Maui or Kauai or the Big Island. Again, work there three years and decide what to do from there. You know, a lot of these people came with different kinds of skills or experiences and were eager to leave the plantation and go do their own thing. So carpenters, for example, or tailors, or laundry people, or landscapers, or farmers. A lot of them went to Kona and got involved, heavily involved with the Kona coffee industry there. Many became shopkeepers. So became even more embedded into the society because they started taking on all these different roles. They weren't just plantation workers. They were all kinds of craftspeople when they first arrived and they were working on the plantations, what do you know about what their life might have been like? Everybody talks about hardship, housing conditions, medical care. I mean, you name it, it was very limited. Workers were pushed to the brink. The work was hard labor, hot sun. You also hear of the other side as well. I mean, I think for a lot of them, they found life on the plantations also offered them a sense of community. I think Hawaii is unique in that respect, that these multi-ethnic, multicultural communities were able to flourish in spite of their different cultures. 
And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations, and I'm your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Today we are talking with Arnold Hiura. He represents the Hawaii Japanese Center in Hilo. Next week we will talk more about the influence of the Japanese in Hawaii, especially on this island, with Kona Coffee Farmer and member of the Kona Japanese Civic Association, Walter Kunitake, and also learn about plans to build a Japanese cultural center in Kona. Before we get back to Arnold Hiura, let's hear from our great sponsor, KTA Superstores. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. And now back to our discussion with Arnold Hiura of the Hawaii Japanese Center in Hilo. You mentioned that some of the people after leaving the plantation went, for example, into Waipio Valley where they really had to be able to thrive in a primarily Hawaiian community, even learning to speak Hawaiian. So they had to speak Hawaiian and Japanese and English to get along on this island. Yeah, I think once you stepped out of the traditional role of a plantation worker. And let's say if you opened a store, people would come to your store, you'd have to greet them, you'd have to service them, you'd have to provide them with goods and services that they wanted and needed. Your customers would run the gamut of it, Chinese, Hawaiian, Filipino, Portuguese, Puerto Rican. You had to serve all of them. You'd learn enough, if, if not learn every language, at least know the familiar, useful phrases. You know, food was a medium (laughs) in which people exchanged culture. Hawaii people, even on the plantations, would share food. A lot of our local dishes are actually created because of different cultural influences. At the time, the Japanese, mostly men, some women, were still laborers in the plantation. To what extent do you think they got involved in the broader community? Clearly, after the Japanese left, they became very involved in the broader community, but while on the plantation, was that part of what they were able to do, or were they totally focused on their work in the plantation, that's all they had time and energy to deal with? No, I think they were actively involved in various kinds of ways. The plantation encouraged participation in sports, for example. People got involved with school, education, religion. Churches were built, various denominations. And Japanese were active in all of these fronts, eventually organized labor, politics. Yeah, you had involvement on different levels, opportunity to get involved, be active, participate in a leadership role across ethnic differences. Well, clearly the Japanese really did that, particularly the members of the 442nd returned from World War II, and they became very active in Hawaii politics. You know, we've heard a lot about the involvement in World War II, but Japanese arrived here before the Spanish-American War. They were here during World War I, but I haven't heard much about the role, if any, of the Japanese in those wars when they were living in Hawaii. Do you know anything about that? No, not much, except for the fact that, yes, there were Japanese immigrants, Issei, who did fight in wars prior to World War II. We have in our collection a World War I uniform that belonged to Sanji Abe. Abe was also active in business and politics and all kinds of different things. 
By the time World War II came along, a lot of the Japanese had obviously left the plantation life. They were very active in many of the activities you've spoken of. They had stores, they had farms, they were really a force on this island. World War II came along and all Japanese and Japanese Americans on the west coast of the mainland were interned. That was not the case in Hawaii where it looks like what the United States government did was only imprison those Japanese who were considered to be the most influential leaders, teachers, those kind of folks. Talk about the impact of the war on the Japanese and Japanese Americans in Hawaii at that time. Well, naturally people of Japanese ancestry, whether they were first or second generation, were looked upon with some suspicion and I think it was really a matter of how they responded that determined what their future was in Hawaii and the future of their children. I wasn't around at the time but we hear stories of people destroying their family objects that were of Japan. Any picture of the emperor burned, you know, things like that. Even very valuable collectible items like samurai swords and things were thrown or buried or burned and in this place was kind of a more of an all-American display of we are true Americans. Japanese could not congregate in groups. All the Buddhist churches were shut down, things like that. Even weddings were limited to the bride and groom and to witnesses, I believe. Wow. So no big bridal party or reception to follow or anything like that. Any kind of gathering that involved people of Japanese ancestry was limited. What about the Japanese schooling? Because I know many people that I've heard talk about going to Japanese school even during that time. That was children, so did that stop for a while? Oh yeah. Language school teachers were one of the first to be arrested anyway, as well as ministers. Some business people, especially those who had an import-export relationship with Japan and had an unusually high amount of trips to Japan or correspondence with Japan were under suspicion. Some of the martial arts sensei were selected out for arrest. But you know, the selective arrests of certain people only, I think, compounded the level of uncertainty and suspicion. It was kind of like, why did they pick our neighbor and not us? Or why did they pick us and not them? Some families have told me that during the war they were ostracized because their father was arrested during the war. It was in some ways even more insidious than taking the whole group of them and packing them all off to camp. By selectively picking out certain individuals only raised the fear and the suspicion and the uncertainty. It made for a very difficult situation. Of course, the 442 is probably the most famous. Along with that, you should mention, of course, the MIS, the Military Intelligence Service, 1399th Engineers. And these were all Nisei-based fighting units. You have a uniform here of somebody who you said was in military intelligence. What was that function exactly? These were Nisei who had some knowledge of Japanese. And they were selected, rather than go to the normal infantry boot camp, they were sent off to language school and were used to monitor transmissions, later on interrogate POWs, things of that nature. So the uniform that we have is actually a flight jacket and belonged to a local family. The father signed up to serve in World War II and was selected and sent to intelligence school and assigned to a bomber squadron over the Pacific. 
my understanding is that you had your headset on, you had your oxygen mask on, but you weren't in any form of pressurized cabin. So it must have been freezing cold up there. So every time I look at that flight jacket, I, I wonder how they survive those conditions with just that jacket. Well, you also have a wool coat that they wore in combat, I think, in Europe. And I frankly don't know, given how heavy that coat is, how they managed to wear that coat and even move. A lot of those Nisei guys who were 18, 19 years old weren't very big. My understanding is that it took special effort to outfit these guys because the standard issue military gear was too big for them. You gotta understand that they fought in Europe through the winter, through Italy, France, Germany, and uh, slogged through mud and snow and all of that. So they had to have that wool coat, but the thing weighs a ton. These artifacts can tell stories. They're capable of telling stories. I know that people of Japanese descent have been active in Hawaii politics for a long time. Certainly after World War II, that became even more evident. And in fact, when I had the wonderful privilege to interview Senator Daniel K. Inouye, he talked about that being a concerted effort. Governor John Burns was an example of somebody who really tried to promote young Japanese men going off to law school, coming back, being able to serve Hawaii. Talk about the influence of the Japanese in Hawaii politics, the rise of the Japanese, and that influence here in the state. I guess you have to remember the context, which is that Hawaii was a very different place back then. People refer to the Big Five. What the Big Five referred to would be interlocking directorships between businesses, banks, and social organizations. And basically, you have a small minority of people that control life in Hawaii in general. And the big five were sugarcane companies, very active in the late 1800s and well into the 1900s. Castle and Cook, Alexander and Baldwin, C. Brewer and Company, Amfac, which was American Factors at the time, and Theo H. Davies. Yeah, so for a lot of these soldiers who fought valiantly in Europe, they may have left as plantation workers, plantation kids, but they came back very much more worldly in their perspective. They were heralded as heroes, and yet many of them felt trapped into going back to the life they led before they went to war. But then there was something called the GI Bill of Rights, which made an unaffordable education affordable. And so for many of them, it was an opportunity to take that step and do something other than just go back to work and accept things the way they were. But even after they came back with their college degrees, a lot of them still felt that the glass ceiling, as it were, existed. Nothing changed. And that the only real way that they could make those changes was through the political process. And so they were, as you said, you know, inspired by people like Burns and others to organize. They didn't have a lot of money, but they could garner a lot of votes. Just sheer numbers. Politics is just sheer numbers. So at one time, just the Japanese Americans alone would have been close to 40% of the population. So with those kinds of numbers, if you mobilize, you're going to be successful. And that's kind of what happened. They organized themselves. Uh, 52 of the McCarran Act allowed for citizenship. Japanese, until that time, could, Issei could not become U.S. citizens, but that allowed them to become citizens, and many of them did. So all that did was raise the number of votes. 
And it was not just AJAs, but you know, when you look at the role that organized labor played in driving post-war politics in Hawaii, then you look at organizations like the ILWU, they were multi-ethnic, very self-consciously multi-ethnic. When you say very self-consciously multi-ethnic, meaning they wanted to draw in Americans of Japanese ancestry no, along with no. the others? It was kind of like, this is my observation, ILWU, if they had five officers, they would have one Japanese, one Chinese. one. If they would have a Mayday court, there would be one Japanese, one Chinese, one Filipino, Hawaiian. You know what I mean? So you would have representatives of each different ethnic group on all the major functions. I think that was significant. It did have an impact on local politics. So it wasn't just AJA Nisei soldiers, it was others participating in that process following the war. Well, as you point out, there were a lot of different groups that came here, a lot of different ethnicities. This is the first I've actually heard about a union being so deliberate in its choices, and obviously that's pretty important for a union if they want to stay in power, so fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, I spent some time going through the ILWU library on Oahu, and as you flip through their photo archives, it just jumps out at you. I mean, here's a big event, or here's a big meeting taking place, and you look at the, the faces across the stage or the names in the caption, and there's one of each <laughs> every single time. In some cases, they would even say, Filipino representative, the so-and-so officer, and they would be identified in that way, all but guaranteeing that you would have a multi-ethnic group of people represented every time the union went forward in public. And they were very good at organizing, obviously. Very important to being successful in politics. Obviously, we live on a multicultural island. I'd say more multicultural, more multi-ethnic than some of the other islands. Talk about Japanese culture and how it affects our life today here on the big island of Hawaii. Japanese people are actively involved in all forms of activity here on the Big Island. I think some of the more visible ones would be in the business community. Companies like KTA, multi-generational business, seven locations around the Big Island, very active in the community, involved in all kinds of fundraising activities and school-based activities. HPM is the same kind of situation. Suisan company, trucking companies, active politically. In a way, it may be a little misleading to say Japanese Americans or Japanese culture is influencing life here on the Big Island. It's really kind of a collective kind of thing. Japanese culture as such has become localized. A lot of the values, you can't say, oh, these are Japanese values, because you find similar values in other ethnic groups. Almost every single one, if you took the time to really break it down and say, what are the core values in Filipino culture or Portuguese culture or anything else, you kind of find that there are these values that kind of cross over. More likely than not, they form the core values of what we call local. So I think that's kind of the message we try to portray here at the Hawaii Japanese Center, that you may start this discussion with Japanese history in mind, Japanese culture in mind, but you can't get to the present without understanding and appreciating how all these different values have come together to form what we value today as local. Arnold Hiura, thank you so much for talking with us today. Aloha. Thank you very much for visiting us and for featuring us on your show. 
Aloha. And so our listeners know the Hawaii Japanese Center in Hilo is temporarily closed because they are mounting a brand new exhibition and they're going to reopen, they tell me, sometime in the first quarter of 2020. You may look at their website. It's hawaiijapanesecenter.com and keep track of when they're going to reopen. Next week, join me for more of the story of the Japanese, especially on the Big Island, with Walter Kunitake, Kona coffee farmer and very active member of the Kona Japanese Civic Association. I'm Sherry Bracken. This is Island Conversations. Until next time, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.